It's the World This Week, the World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from Brussels, France 24 correspondent uh, Dave Keating. It's almost the weekend, Dave. It is, and I, I have a weekend uh, free now that the summit ended early. All right, we'll talk about that EU summit coming up. Uh, Victor Mallet, senior editor at the Financial Times, is with you. How are you, sir? Good evening. Very well, thank you. All right. Uh, nice to see you again. Wall Street uh, Journal reporter Matthew Dalton, just back from the COP28 summit. Have you unpacked your bags? Actually, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Now that you mention it. All right. More on the state of Matthew's laundry coming up. Uh, with us as well, France 24 International Affairs editor Kedavon Gorgestani. How's your week been? Busy. Busy indeed. You can listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. Is Washington's patience running thin? It all started Tuesday when Israel's prime minister issued a video address in Hebrew. Good. Yes, there is disagreement about the day after Hamas, and I hope that we will reach agreement here as well. I would like to clarify my position. I will not allow Israel to repeat the mistake of Oslo. After the great sacrifice of our civilians and our soldiers, I will not allow the entry into Gaza of those who educate for terrorism, support terrorism, and finance terrorism. Gaza will be neither Hamastan nor Fatastan. Reaction was swift. Biden... Uh, first at a fundraiser where he called on Netanyahu to sack his far-right coalition partners. Then a White House Hanukkah ceremony uh, where the U.S. president called on Israel to stop its, quote, indiscriminate bombing of civilians in the Gaza Strip. Biden and Netanyahu, it's a pair that goes way back. The picture on his desk of he and I when he was a young member of the Israeli uh, um, uh, service here, uh, foreign service. And uh, I was a 32-year-old senator, and I wrote on the top of Bibi, I love you, but I don't agree with the damn thing you had to say. <laughs> it's about the same today. A lot's happened since, Kedavon Gorgistani. Yes, and the, really the, the cracks are showing more and more uh, between the Israelis uh, and the Americans. Uh, now the, the real focus is the timing of uh, the military operation. Jake Sullivan, who was uh, just in Israel meeting with uh, Netanyahu, uh, talking about a new phase, a more focused phase of the military uh, yeah, operations. Joe, Joe Biden's national security advisor, uh, Agreed with the Israelis, it's going to take months, he said. It's going to take months, but he said that he wants to see the shift to a more focused uh, sort of military operation happen within weeks, even if the overall uh, aim it might uh, take months. And that has uh, brought some pushback from uh, the Israelis who don't really agree with the, uh, that timeline. But you're seeing increasingly the Americans not only talking about uh, protecting the civilians, but uh, trying to get the Israelis to wrap this up a little bit uh, faster uh, than planned. And another thing that Jake Sullivan was asked, and he uh, sort of uh, tried to uh, skirt away from answering that question, uh, was whether the U.S. was considering withholding military aid to Israel uh, if they don't agree on the sort of timeline. He didn't want to answer that. And the fact that this is even a question for the United States is significant in itself. Well, it comes on the wake, uh, in the wake of Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reporting that the United States had frozen a shipment of more than 27,000 U.S.-made rifles intended for Israel's national police over concerns they could end up being transferred to extremist Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Now, uh, Matthew Dalton, 
this is a specific issue, what some call a low-hanging fruit, uh, getting the government in Israel to uh, uh, discourage those West Bank settlers uh, from uh, intimidating and trying to grab, which they've continued to do since October the 7th, the lands of uh, Palestinians in, in, in the West Bank. But uh, again, it's what, what Kedavan was just talking uh, uh, about a moment ago. It goes beyond those rifles. Well, we'll see if it does. I mean, they, they also um, said they were going to um, deny visas to settlers that had been involved in violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, and so this, this rifle um, move goes, goes a bit farther than that. But I think you have to look at it in the overall context of the relationship, which, which is that the, U, the Biden administration just um, uh, decided to send weapons to Israel doing an end run around Congress. Um, they have vetoed the, the ceasefire res uh, resolution in the United Nations. Um, so th this, it's true that the cracks are starting to show, um, but I mean, compare the Biden administration's, what, what Biden has said, um, compare that to what Macron said earlier this month, which is that, you know, Israel has to decide, um, you know, it, it, basically what is their goal here in, in the West, in uh, Gaza Strip? Are they, do they really want to eliminate Hamas? If they want to do that, it's going to take, uh, the, the war could go on for, for years, for a decade. And so you compare, um, that position with the Biden administration's position, and you still see that that for now um, Biden is standing very strongly uh, behind Israel. And whether they, you know, the, I, I don't know if the if the U.S. has ever decided to deny weapons before to Israel. Um, I, I I can't recall a step like that being taken. But it, this this move is significant nonetheless. The the police rifles. Yeah, one. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've always had a free ride. Uh, for, you know since the formation of Israel. Basically, Israel has had a pretty much a free ride, except on Suez, when the British and the French got involved uh, in American foreign policy. And, and it's quite significant that that kind of is, appears to be coming to an end, or at least the cracks are starting to show, as, as you say. You and Netanyahu could be the one who loses that massive advantage that Israel has always enjoyed in the United States, having, always having the United States on its side, whatever happens. And that is now no longer possible. Because so, so let me ask you, Victor Mallet, uh, there's this um, resolution before the United Nations General Assembly. At the UN General Assembly, the resolutions are non-binding. Uh, only 10 nations uh, side with Israel, including the United States, but countries uh, that generally support Israel, like Australia, like Canada, like New Zealand, yeah. uh, don't do so. Does that matter or, or this doesn't really factor into what we've done? No, I think it does matter because America, you know, Israel's... Uh, actions are becoming a burden for the United States when it has a lot of other international crises to deal with in Ukraine and in Taiwan and elsewhere. And so if, you know, Israel is is doing things that the United States does not want it to do because it's, it, you know, Israel has become a very awkward ally for the United States to have. And I think, uh, you know, the, the Biden administration and even Trump will put more and more pressure on Israel to, to uh, you know, to ma manage its war in a much more responsible way that at least, uh, you know, has some regard for the human rights of, of Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. It's not just the Biden administration, it's also Congress, and Congress is, uh, you know, 90, 80% behind Israel. So that's a huge, um, uh, even if the Biden administration wanted to, to go against Israel, it's, they might not have the support of Congress to do that. So disagreement over ceasefire, disagreement over... Uh, how hard uh, the crackdown should be on those uh, extremist West Bank settlers. 
Well, that's the reason, uh, Dave Keating, that uh, you get a Saturday morning lion. Please explain. Yeah, I mean, today was the day that they were discussing the Gaza situation at the European Council of 27 national EU leaders. And a number of prime ministers came into the summit today saying that they wanted conclusions on the Gaza situation, that if this summit ended with no conclusions on Gaza, it would really uh, erode the EU's credibility as a foreign actor, as as uh, an agent for peace, or just even an, uh, anything even relevant in this situation. But we did end this summit earlier than expected. It was supposed to, at minimum, go on until tonight. People were talking about it going until Sunday. Uh, but essentially, they, they threw in the towel on two issues. One, Viktor Orban uh, vetoing the uh, start of the session talks with Ukraine, but also this issue of trying to get a statement uh, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, which the vast majority of EU countries supported in that UN vote. But there are three countries that are not moving, Austria, Czechia, and Germany, and there was no way to get conclusions that called for a ceasefire. In the end, they decided that spending many, many hours, maybe into tomorrow, uh, is trying to agree some uh, wishy-washy language that no one would be happy with was pointless. Uh, that's what the Irish uh, uh, Taussig, uh, Leo Varadkar, said when he was leaving tonight. He said, look, th there was no point. It was clear that you were not going to get language on a ceasefire, and so it was better just not to say anything. And, and about um, the settlers? Ireland, along with Belgium, Spain, and Malta, are also... Yeah, I was just going to say, so Ireland, Belgium, Spain, and Malta are pushing for the EU to uh, condemn the settler violence, to put sanctions on settlers who are who have been found to have engaged in violence, also uh, deny them entry into the European Union. They did discuss that today, but I'm told it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, Varadkar said upon leaving, he's hopeful that he can get an EU agreement on this, but if he can't, he will uh, go on his own, and, and Ireland will impose those sanctions on its own. All right, meanwhile, the uh, over in Washington, the U.S. Senate putting off its Christmas recess. Uh, for a second shot at uh, voting on military aid for both Israel and also for Ukraine. Ukraine's president, who's been globetrotting this week with stops that included D.C., where Volodymyr Zelensky lobbied senators, as well as the pro-Trump speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, who's holding out. Uh, he wants the Biden administration to make concessions on uh, an unrelated issue, domestic border control reform. What the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and, and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. I have also made very clear from day one that our first condition on any national security supplemental spending package is about our own national security first. The border is an absolute catastrophe. And this is because of the policies of this White House and this administration. We had 12,000 illegal crossings on one day last week alone, on Wednesday. Kedavon Gorgistani. Well, I like how he started with the fact that it was because there was lack of oversight and lack of strategy uh, in uh, Ukraine. But really what it, this is about is uh, the immigration uh, battle and really you're seeing uh, this, this battle play out and you're seeing that Ukraine is being held hostage, basically, uh, by something that has really nothing to do uh, with Ukraine. Uh, the Republicans are seeing an opening 
to get concessions out of the Democrats, to try to uh, use that to get uh, those things on uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. And they're not budging because if you look at most of the Republicans, there are a few who are really dead set against more help for Ukraine ideologically, but really overwhelmingly, they are in favor of continuing supporting Ukraine, but they want to use this opportunity to uh, do something about uh, immigration. For example, Mitch McConnell, he's very much a supporter of Ukraine, but he wants this immigration battle because, of course, we're entering the final uh, straight 2024, the election, and they want to be seen as coming out on top of this battle on immigration because that has been their priority for a while. Yeah, I think actually the, the events of the past uh, week or so have actually been pretty good news for Ukraine because good there news. was yeah, because there was this worry that maybe the Mike Johnson coming in, he was going to, you know, he had he had been critical of Ukraine aid. He had um, and there, there was a kind of worry about whether the Congress was going to still be behind Ukraine. And what this debate has shown is that it seems like Johnson and, and like much of the Republican Party is is in favor, is going to su support aid to Ukraine. They're just holding it hostage for this other issue, which is not at all related to Ukraine. And um, I think there's not going to really be, um, it's a question of spending more money. And um, I think what Congress is good at doing is spending more money. And they're probably going to agree to spend more money on the border, on Ukraine and on everybody will, <laughs> everybody will get and on on support for Israel. So everybody's going to get more money. All right. Uh, to keep Kiev's financial lifeline uh, alive, Zelensky traveling first all the way to Buenos Aires for last Sunday's inauguration of Argentina's new populist president, Javier Milei, uh, uh, who uh, uh, offered uh, the, that one point, And you'll see it here in these images, uh, the president of Ukraine who is uh, uh, himself uh, Jewish, uh, reportedly a lapsed Jew. It is Hanukkah, so uh, he gave him, you'll see it here, um, I don't, don't quite know a what this is. A long <laughs> hug, first of all, and then, uh, here it comes, a menorah. Okay. Uh, now, uh, he, he didn't go to uh, Buenos Aires for a menorah. The, the main attraction, it seems, was to lobby Viktor Orban ahead of a crucial EU summit. Uh, these images, unfortunately, uh, Victor Mallet were d dubbed over in Spanish, so we don't know what language they were speaking. We don't quite know what they're saying, but we get the gist. Yeah, I expect they were talking English. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, the interesting thing about, uh, you know, you, you were saying, um, Matt, that, that there could be a deal in the U.S., essentially, over the funding. And it looks like there could be a, a deal in Europe uh, uh, over the funding, just leaving out Viktor Orban, who's also trying to hold Ukraine hostage to his own financial and political needs. And the Europeans came out today and said, well, we'll find a way around it. We, uh, the other 27, I think it is now, you know, we can, we can find a way to get the money to Ukraine without having unanimous agreement, including including uh, Hungary and Viktor Orban. So, you know, that money could go ahead. And that is the crucial issue for Ukraine right now is funding for ammunition and logistics. And that is what they need. And that is what they probably are going to get, although with a great deal of difficulty in the new year. Uh, Dave Keating, uh, do, you, do you share these the upbeat vibes that are being felt here <laughs> in the studio in Paris? Well, I think the, the money is going to come. That's clear. Whether they have to go to that plan B of working out this instrument outside of the budget with just 26 countries 
They will do that if they have to, but I think it should be stressed. They really, really, really don't want to do that. It's a mess. It's extremely complicated to do that. You have to get approval from the parliament,、uh, and it sets the precedent that support for the Ukraine comes outside of the EU. That it's somehow superfluous to the EU. That is a really negative message to Ukraine. It's a really negative message about Europe's place in the world, about European sovereignty, about the defense union, all of this. So I think they're going to try everything they can to convince Orbán to end his veto for that follow-up summit that's going to happen in late January or early February. And I think what that probably involves is paying him off some more. They already paid him 10 billion euros, unfroze his EU funds that had been frozen for rule of law violations. There's 20 more, 20 billion more euros that are frozen, and I think they were saving that if he didn't agree at this summit, that they could use it to. What some people are calling to bribe him in order to get his agreement in late January. I think that is actually the more likely scenario. All right. In the end, as you say, Hung- Hungary's prime minister getting some of what he wanted. He left the room to to abstain when fellow leaders greenlighted the kickoff of membership negotiations for Ukraine and Moldova. But despite the European Commission unfreezing 10 billion euros in funds for Budapest, as you say. Uh, it's still no when it comes to that、uh, uh, 50 billion euro aid package for Kiev. The first is it、uh, to get is、uh, better late than never.、Uh, second, why we are here is not to make business. It's not about bargain. It's not about deal. We represent approaches and principles. So to give money to Ukraine、uh, is easy to to do because in short term the money. For Ukraine is already in the budget. Dave Keating, I've got a question. What makes Viktor Orbán tick? Well, that's what people were trying to figure out at the summit. I was talking to some EU diplomats、uh, earlier this week who said they don't know what is this a usual Orbán play. I mean, we're familiar with these summits that become the Orbán show because everyone's trying to get him to unveto something or the other. And what people were saying earlier this week is they didn't know is this time different? Is this his usual play of trying to、uh, using brinksmanship to get his way,、uh, or is this more ideological this time? Is this something where he's not targeting his domestic base but actually targeting an international audience? In the end, they did get him dropping his veto on starting a session talks with Ukraine, but. That's kind of a technical step. I mean, it's one small step in a ten-year process. Certainly, it wasn't urgent. It would have been symbolically troubling if it didn't happen today. But certainly, there was no reason for that happening soon.、Um, and I think the question is: with this funding, is is his end goal here just his usual brinksmanship that he just wants to get that money released? He really does depend on doling out that money at home in order to shore up his support. Or was this about something more? We still don't really have the answer to that. I think we won't find that out until this follow-up summit early next year. You talk about the the dangers of uh, doing uh, a workaround uh, uh, right now. The rules of the EU are unanimity. Lots of reactions on the hashtag World this week,、uh, including this one from Rob. Time for reform in the EU if it wants to be taken seriously and a player on the world stage. Majority voting is needed. Unless、uh, they can be hobbled by single countries, as in this case by a Putin ally, Victor Mallet. Yeah, I, I just think I mean this is all you know 
fascinating the, the way that Orban has indeed held this this uh, meeting hostage. Uh, I think we shouldn't forget another really significant development this week, which is you know in in the. The, the nationalist populist um, government of Poland has been replaced by, and Donald Tusk is now the prime minister. And that's, that's a pretty significant change for the way the EU is going to function in a much more uh, coherent manner, I think, from here on in. And it leaves Orban you know, more isolated than he was, if you like. And I know their positions on Ukraine were not the same, but they were both governments that were uh, very you know, significant governments in the, in the makeup of the EU, and they were causing problems for the EU's decision-making. And you now have somebody who is not going to cause problems for the EU's decision-making in the, in the form of Donald Tusk. But Kervan Gorgistani, we see that uh, Orban, uh, even with Poland's not on his side, he can still block things. Well, yes, but he's, I think, uh, also a sort of... Uh, the symbol of something that is uh, deeper in the EU, because we're talking about Orban because he's the one who used that sort of that veto uh, power. But you have in Europe some countries that are slowly, you know, changing. For example, uh, Slovakia. He didn't vote to block uh, the accession for uh, Ukraine, but this new government is also much more to the right, much less pro-European. You're having other countries in the EU that are becoming more nationalistic, more closed in. And so there is good news with, with Poland, which is very important, uh, but there are also others that are sort of hiding behind Orban. We're focused on Orban, but there are other little cracks uh, in the EU that are also starting to show. Yeah, and everyone's looking at it with an eye to uh, European elections that are taking place uh, in the spring and wondering if uh, the, the, uh, the, the populist camp is, is going to make hay with, with what's happening in the world right now. Well, I, I mean, Dave mentioned, like, is there something else that Orban is up to? Is he... Um, you know, is he looking to be bribed or is, is this some, I, I mean, is this ideological? And I think, um, yeah, you just have to look at Orban's relationship with um, the, the nationalist far right in Europe and Orban's relationship with Putin. Um, and this is something that I think, you know, it, it could be part of this ideological alliance that Orban has with um, with Russia uh, and, and with other political forces, as you were saying, across Europe. And also keep in mind that um, Hungary is still buying quite a bit of energy from Russia. They're still a big, uh, pretty big oil and gas customer um, of Russia, even though the rest of Europe has has moved on. Uh, so, you know, those two things could be at play um, in, in what Orban is up to. All right. And then there's what's happening on the battlefield, a winter stalemate uh, with lots of casualties on both sides. But uh, Moscow's got uh, more cannon fodder. And uh, uh, that seems to be to the taste of Moscow, the stalemate. Vladimir Putin's marathon end-of-year press conference, there you see it broadcast on, a, on a, the outside of a building in Moscow, uh, is, was back on this Thursday. Last year, when the war wasn't going so well, no explanation given, it was canceled. Uh, the Kremlin even coupled it this year with the annual call-in show where ordinary citizens ask about everything from foreign policy to broken elevators and council estates. It's all about getting the president's attention at these affairs. One participant even created an AI-generated doppelganger. Hello, Vladimir Vladimirovich. I'm a student and study at the St. Petersburg State University. I want to ask, is it true that you may have many body doubles? And also, how do you feel about the dangers that artificial intelligence and neural networks bring to our lives? Thank you. 
The student from St. Petersburg didn't introduce himself. Well, I see you can look like me and talk in my voice, but I thought and decided that only one person should look like myself and talk in my voice. That person is going to be me. <laughs> there you have it, Victor. The, uh, the record's been set straight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Better you know, be careful. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I guess the main message from, from his thing that his main serious message was, you know, I'm going to carry on with this war and I'm not, I'm, I'm not backing down. And clearly the Russians, uh, you know, in, yeah, he in terms about of denazification, yeah, in terms of propaganda, but he's talked about that for ages. But in terms of, you know, the way the war is kind of stalemated is essentially to Russia's advantage right now. And they do have what is essentially a war economy functioning. You know, the arms factories are working three shifts a day. Uh, and this is all to Russia's advantage, especially when uh, the West is having problems, you know, financing Ukraine's war effort. But I think we shouldn't sort of forget, uh, you know, the lessons of the Second World War when, when the Nazi Germany, you know, got all the way to the outskirts of Moscow. And then they eventually lost with an enormous amount of help from the West, from uh, the United States in particular, which I think provided something like $180 billion in today's money in terms of thousands of aircraft, thousands of tanks. And this is the kind of aid proportionately speaking, that the West is probably going to carry on providing to Ukraine. So it may not be that, um, you know, the war is is going uh, quite as much in the way that Russia would like. And we must also not forget that although, obviously, Ukrainian morale has suffered, uh, we, we, we know, but we don't know how much uh, Russian morale has also suffered. And they are also not, um, you know, having an easy, an easy war. And I think we shouldn't forget that because obviously the media are not able to operate freely in Russia at the moment. And we don't really know how bad things are um, on the home front for, for the Russian in, conscripts in, in particular. Infused in that press conference was this notion of the greater Russia. You know, we, we, we talked about it in passing, uh, the fact that Moldova is also one of these former Soviet states that's getting a, an increased st status, Georgia, the same thing. Uh, again, these are former Soviet states here. And I, I hope that this press conference that uh, Vladimir Putin did and what he said about the greater Russia, what he said about demilitarizing and denazifying uh, Ukraine will be an answer to some still in the West who to this day are saying, Maybe at some point we need to talk about a, a negotiation at this point. Clearly, Vladimir Putin has made it clear that there is no negotiation. He said he's going till the end. He hasn't changed his goals. He hasn't uh, decided that maybe this is enough or uh, things like that. And I think that this press conference should be used by people in the West to realize that those who are asking, for example, Zelensky, are you ready to sit down and talk about a negotiated peace? The answer is right there. Vladimir Putin himself is not ready to sit down and negotiate peace. He wants denazification of Ukraine. And he's talked about Odessa as well, taking Odessa, you know, in, in, and he's as not well as what there, he's already yeah. got. He's not going to stop, you know, until he's got to Odessa at least and maybe more. Roll back the clock uh, to February of 2022, uh, Dave Keating, and the countries that were front and center right away in uh, uh, backing Ukraine among the EU uh, were the former Warsaw Pact uh, states. Uh, and and, and the, the question is today, because uh, we've 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 talked uh, the, about uh, 
uh, whether or not with the arrival of Donald Tusk there's going to be a a return to what we'd seen before Poland, uh, where there's been some wavering with uh, that truckers border blockade. Uh, did you get a sense at this summit that uh, uh, the uh, the resolve is the same and the fears as expressed there by Kedivan are the same? Yes, I did. Uh, certainly when you had uh, particularly the Baltic leaders coming in, their messaging has stayed consistently strong, consistently alarming uh, in terms of what they think uh, Putin wants and their idea that they are next if uh, Putin is allowed to succeed in Ukraine. I think the border, that the trucking dispute with Poland and Ukraine was more a case, well, A, it was in the run-up to the election. Farmers are an important voting bloc in Poland. It was kind of a case of realpolitik uh, inserting itself into what is generally a very strong support in Poland uh, for Ukraine on from all parties. So that will be the case with the new government I think just as much as as with the old government. Um, Generally, I mean, you have Slovakia, obviously, and Hungary, where this is not the case. Uh, Bulgaria and Romania were never as enthusiastic about supporting Ukraine as as the more northern, eastern EU states. But uh, amongst those, those Baltic states, Poland, Czechia, I think the resolve is still pretty strong. All right. Multilateral agreements are hard, as uh, Dave has been reporting the last couple of days. No one expected a COP28 summit hosted by the world's seventh biggest oil producer to save the planet in 12 days. But COP28 in Dubai concluding with a document that for the very first time recognizes uh, at this level the need to transition away from fossil fuels. For the first time in the history of our regime, the decision, supported by all nations of the world, calls for transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems so as to achieve net zero by 2050. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. So, Matthew Dalton, you're just back from Dubai. Uh, mi- mixed reviews, as you can hear from uh, from those closing statements. Yeah, I mean, there's some some really good things. As uh, John Kerry said, the first um, language that, that really calls for cutting back on fossil fuels in the more than 30 years or so that these climate talks have been happening. Uh, before that, Saudi Arabia, China, India, and at times the U.S. even um, blocked any reference to, to fossil fuels in these agreements. Um, just talked about emissions, cutting emissions, but didn't talk about the source of those emissions. So that's an important recognition that um, you know the world not only just has to cut emissions, but they also have to cut back on fossil fuels. Um, and obviously that you know that seems obvious to us. Scientists have said it for a long time, but as a political statement, a political recognition, it's important. The the backers of this agreement hope it'll send a broad signal to the global economy, um, to investors that the money should now really go into clean energy and get out of fossil fuels, get out of the production and distribution of fossil fuels. That said, um, the world has a really tall order to, to live up to the um, temperature targets of the Paris Agreement um, of 2015, which calls for limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, attempting to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial era temperatures. And for that to happen, um, scientists say that emissions, global emissions, need to fall 43% between 2019 and 2030. Um, Right now, they're still going up, and we're already almost in 2024. So 
um, something needs to change really quickly on the ground um, for the world to stand a, a chance of, of, of living up to those agreements. And we don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, China is installing renewable energy at a very quick pace, um, but they're also building coal-fired power plants. Uh, and that's, and I think China is the, the country to watch here in the next few years because it's kind of like a race between renewable energy and coal-fired power. And we still don't know, who's, you know which side is going to win out in the, in the years ahead. Kicked them out? Yeah, I mean, existentially, this is much more important for humanity than the war in Ukraine and the situation in Gaza. Unfortunately, this is something that is, it's, it's sort of so big that we forget that it's there every day and is going to affect us and is already killing thousands of people uh, around the world. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, um, we'll, 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 ha we'll have to see what happens. But I think you were talking about renewable energy in China. You know, the key is to follow the money. And uh, that's where, you know, the real incentives are going to come. Uh, I think I've said it on this program before that, that that's what what counts in a way is is not you know the government of texas is not going to uh suddenly go all green and, and decide that it wants to invest in renewable energy but the investors of texas are already massively investing in renewables because they're cheaper and they're more profitable than oil and gas and that is what is going to drive the whole thing the same thing is going to happen in china and probably i mean i'm not trying to be too optimistic here but probably a lot of those coal-fired power stations in china and certainly coal-fired power stations in India are just going to be stranded assets that are no longer relevant to the, the future energy mix that is going to be required and going to be the most economically viable as well as the most environmentally important. Victor Mao, definitely seeing the glass half full this Friday. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was in the final communique, this is going to sound familiar to you, Dave Keating, and, uh, uh, this, um, uh, this talk about transition energies. Uh, they talked about natural gas. Uh, the hosts, by the way, sit on uh, what's possibly the world's second biggest reserves of natural gas. And uh, there was a word that was uh, music to the ears of uh, the French delegation, the word nuclear. Yeah, I mean, a nuclear is definitely having a renaissance. At the moment, we're seeing it inserted into all kinds of EU climate legislation as well. That's with a lot of French lobbying. Um, but a lot of countries are obviously expressing increased interest in nuclear because it is an emissions-free uh, way of generating power. It's interesting with the, the transition fuel language in the final text. Obviously, the host this year was the big story, the uh, UAE. Uh, a petrostate was hosting this uh, climate cop, obviously struck a lot of people as something uh, to look askance at. A lot of people defended the decision, saying, look, it's good that you bring everyone to the table. I think some of those people who defended UAE were then felt a little bit like they were carrying the can when some of the news came out over the past two weeks about what um, the United Arab Emirates government was up to. During this, uh, during this summit, lobbying for fossil fuels. But we're going to go through this all again next year, because guess who was chosen to host COP29? <laughs> Azerbaijan, another petrostate. And last year, COP27 was in Egypt, uh, certainly not a country known for its environmental record. So that means we're going to have three years in a row of this um, kind of problematic hosts. And it's, there's a big, big question about whether the legitimacy of the UN climate process can survive three years in a row of this, uh, particularly as these COP summits become so saturated with fossil fuel lobbyists uh, and business interests. It's, it is turning a lot of people 
off. A side note about that Azerbaijan choice, it was Eastern Europe's turn to host next year. Normally, when it's Eastern Europe's turn, Poland hosts. That's been the case for the last 20 years or so. Uh, Russia vetoed Poland hosting. Russia was vetoing basically every EU Eastern, uh, Eastern EU state, and so that's how it ended up in Azerbaijan. Apparently, they weren't too pleased, though, with, with Azerbaijan, the, the, the Russians. That's what, I, that's what one panelist was saying. Uh, the, the, the other night, uh, Kedavon Gorgistani, your, your, your thoughts, you know, this issue of, uh, of how you go faster, though, with, uh, as Matthew was, was explaining, especially with nuclear here in France, uh, it's rarely an argument, um, and, and nuclear is considered very safe, of course, unless you have a uh, nuclear power plant uh, on a front line of a war, like is currently the case uh, in, in, in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, but I think that... Uh this is somehow putting back this discussion uh, over a nuclear. And I was discussing this with uh, our science editor uh, recently uh, about how this was bringing back this idea that there needs to be something that helps you transition faster. faster. And that is why they're discussing nuclear. Of course, there are questions about how you take care of nuclear waste and all of that, but it does help. And uh, to... Uh, talk about uh, the president of COP28, I thought it was uh, interesting what he said at the end of uh, the summit. He said he called it historic. He said that it was a very good uh, decision and agreement, but uh, he said that it was all in the implementation. He said, we are what we do, not what we say, i.e. we need to take steps to implement this agreement. And I thought it was a little bit ironic coming, of course. From coming from him. Well, there was one shining example put forth of a coal, oil and coal producer expressing its willingness to keep its hydrocarbons in the ground. That country is Colombia. However, it says it wants to be helped along with its energy transition. We are the fifth largest export of coal uh, country and also on oil. We need to make that economic transition and it's not easy. I can tell you that not necessarily uh, working on this transition has full international support as it should be. So my call for them will be uh, to get into the table and let's talk about those economic consequences. So there was a climate finance deal that was reached at this summit. Uh, there was a... Uh, a kitty entrusted to the World Bank. Right now, though, uh, as a panelist was saying two weeks ago, uh, its amount is smaller than the last Indiana Jones movie, though. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, so they set up, they agreed on the kind of final rules for this loss and damage fund, which is kind of for, for countries that have suffered very severe uh, forms of climate, climate-related damage. Um, and and seven, I think about $800 million was contributed by various countries, including the UAE. Um, I think the big uh, debate is going to happen um, going into next year's COP in Azerbaijan, because that is when um, they have agreed to set a new uh, goal, a collective goal for financing of climate projects um, in the developing world. That's rich countries and their investors paying for all kinds of climate projects in poorer countries. Um, that, uh, was, that goal was set in the Paris Accord. Um, it's potentially going to be more than a trillion dollars a year. Um, that's the, the kind of the size that some people are talking about. That's the size that the, the developing countries have asked for. Um, and that's also the amount of money that 
the IMF, for example, um, says is the minimum needed for the transition in those countries. So it's, it's going to be a big debate. And one of the questions is, you know, how do you define that sum of money? Is it just money that's coming directly from governments? Is it also money that is coming from gov governments and private investors? Um, if it's, you know, if they define it broadly, then they could set a very large target, um, you know, more than a trillion dollars a year. Uh, but money is key. And another debate they're going to be having um, is, is whether a country like Colombia that has not exploited its fossil fuel resources um, to, up till now and has them and many want to now, mm. um, whether they could, for, for example, be paid to leave them in the ground. Um, say certainly we, what the what the environment minister there was 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 implying right exactly and that's it's a, a debate over what's called avoided emissions um, Ecuador at times has said we you know we have big oil reserves you want us to help save the planet pay us not to to pump them out um, so that's something that's gonna that's quite controversial uh, people are saying we don't want to pay you know it's kind of like you're holding the planet hostage um, we don't want to pay you pay you for to for, to, to release the hostage, basically. All right. See you in Baku on, on that one. <laughs> uh, relatives bemoan the second death of World War II hero Léon Gauthier, the last remaining fighter on D-Day that landed on the Normandy beaches with France's famed Kiefer Commando, died in July. He was aged 100. Relatives are suing over a book on Amazon and Kindle written by a certain Grace Sean that's filled with factual errors, including detention in Germany that never happened. Uh, Grace Sean, unknown. Uh, Amazon's pulled the book over the uh, outrage, but we did find, just by uh, browsing on our, that uh, for £8.99, one can purchase a biography of Léon Gauthier. Is that really a World War II rifle on the cover? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, this one's written by a certain Gilbert. Gilbert Predmore, the long-winded blurb on the site, doesn't really make you want to, look how long it is, doesn't really make you want to read the book, talks of Gauthier's leadership role in the French resistance. He was 18, by the way, when he landed in Normandy. In his capacity as a Mackie soldier, Gauthier showed exemplary leadership qualities and was instrumental in organizing sabotage operations, <coughs> excuse me, against the German occupation uh, forces. Victor Mallet, uh, the real Léon, Léon Gauthier, spent uh, a lot of the war training for that, for that uh, heroic landing uh, on the D-Day beaches in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, so uh, <coughs> as yourself a best-selling author? What, what, what would you tell to, uh, to, to Gilbert Predmore? Well, I mean, you know, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, 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 the assumption is that these books are generated by AI and, and sold, sold for money. And, and I, I believe the first one by Grace Sean, which has now been withdrawn, uh, came out two days after, after Gautier's death. And it sort of suddenly appeared. Well, one question I have is, who are the publishers? If you look at the covers, you, yeah. you don't see the name of a publisher. And unfortunately, when I looked on Amazon France and Amazon UK today, all, all the books had been withdrawn. The, the questionable well, We found questionable this Gilbert books, Predmore but, yeah. since yeah. the month of May. Yeah. This Gilbert Predmore, yeah. I, don't, I couldn't find yeah. a trace yeah. of him. He doesn't have yeah. a Wikipedia yeah. page. Um, yeah. He's been prolific, though, yeah. publishing at least yes. eight other books, yes. according to Amazon, everything <laughs> yeah. from self-help yeah. books, yeah. a biography of the yeah. late crooner yeah. uh, Tony Bennett. No yeah. picture of Tony Bennett on yeah. the cover for that one yeah. either. <laughs> there was also a caregiver's guide to prostate uh, uh, cancer. Yeah, but who's <laughs> buying these books? You know, it's, it's fast, the, But the, there is a real guy in New York State who who got uh, who's I think says that he got AI to write a thirty page children's book called Sammy the Squirrel and he's selling it he's selling a print version and he's selling a an online version and for Amazon three dollars right yeah and that was that that's on you know that has been on on Amazon and and I mean he presumably he's allowed to do that the question is 
is the book any good? And I'm afraid I haven't read Sammy the Squirrel or the, or the fake Leon Gautier uh, biography, but it's, it'd be really interesting to find out. And, but it's worrying for writers uh, and journalists, I guess, as to you know, whether um, AI is going to take our jobs. But at the moment, it's not it doing a very good yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're okay, yeah. The extent of the competition, yeah. I don't think we have much to worry yeah. about. Uh, Dave Keating, another sign the apocalypse is upon us? <laughs> Well, I'd say every example we see of these AI tools writing things, I don't feel very threatened. I know when I've tried to use ChatGPT uh, to see, like, okay, write an article about this, it's almost illegible uh, and also really out of date. So I, so far, I don't feel threatened, but uh, who knows where this is going. All right, there. By the way, no AI generated works at your local uh, bookstore. Uh, the good news for Christmas shoppers is that the, the, their numbers are consistently up both in the United States and here in Europe, because this isn't just a story uh, about what's AI generated. It's a story about uh, these big clearinghouses like Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, a sign that nothing can replace your local bookstore and the person who's sitting there and choosing those books and going through them, sometimes reading them, telling you this one's good, this one's not good. There is something to say about people who know their jobs and who do them because they love their jobs and want to share what they found with you, whether it's one book or 10. Right, written by real human beings for real human beings. Kedavon Gorgistani, many thanks. I want to thank Victor Mallet. I also want to thank Matthew Dalton, Dave Keating for being with us from Brussels. Thanks for being with us here in the world this week.